Revelation chapter 16 in our study of Revelation this morning. Revelation chapter 16. I'm going to do something a little bit out of the ordinary. We are going to focus our attention on a single verse only in Revelation chapter 16. If you don't believe me, you'll find out that that's really true. Now, we're, we're still going to go to other passages. We're going to do what my pastor in Minnesota used to say, go everywhere preaching the gospel uh, in, in, the, in the text. But we're going to really focus on this one verse and, and unpack its meaning. And, and that's a little out of the ordinary, but, but this is a strikingly out of the ordinary kind of verse anyway. In Revelation chapter 16, as we have seen, we've been looking at the final cataclysmic judgments that are being poured out upon the earth. This, this is the last judgment. And once these are finished, Christ breaks through the sky and returns to set up his kingdom and to judge his enemies and ours. So horrific and destructive are these judgments as we've been looking at them over the last couple of weeks that they, they literally render the earth uninhabitable. People are suffering from terrible sores like boils. The sea is turned to blood. The fresh water is turned to blood. The sun is scorching people as if the protective ozone layer has been removed from around the planet. I'm just suggesting that may be one way that God accomplishes that. And to complicate matters, there are periods, at least one long period that it talks about of this palpable darkness over the earth, a kind of darkness that keeps people from, from moving, from seeing each other, and, and they're suffering in this darkness. Then Satan and the Antichrist, called the beast in Revelation, and the false prophet through the power of Satan, they send forth, this is all in chapter 16 that we've already looked at, they send forth demons into the world to deceive the world leaders and persuade them to move their forces west to the valley known as Armageddon in the heartland of Israel, likely in an effort to destroy the remaining people of God. And after they assemble, the final judgment comes upon the earth in the form of an earthquake that literally rocks the globe, splits cities in two, drowns islands, levels mountains, and at the same time, a worldwide storm with unimaginable thunder and lightning and hailstones that weigh, the ESV translates it, a hundred pounds each. This is why the series of judgments is most likely what Jesus is referring to when he says that if God didn't call an end to them, no human being on the planet would survive. But in the middle of this chapter, detailing the wrath of God, in the middle of the sixth judgment, in fact, when the demons are persuading kings to gather their armies for the great day of God Almighty, as it says, the day of the Lord, a single verse oddly appears as if out of nowhere. This verse in the text is verse 15. It has no relationship grammatically to the rest of the text. In other words, if this verse did not appear in the chapter, if you could look at this text and just imagine that that verse does not even appear, we would never know something was missing. The text explains that these demonic spirits will perform signs and cause the kings of the world to assemble their armies for battle on the great day of God, the Almighty. And then if we pick up in verse 16, it says they assemble them at the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. You see that? The text continues to flow without verse 15. And the editors of the ESV and the NASB both try to 
put this verse in parentheses to sort of show that. But the New Testament Greek doesn't have a sub, such a thing as parentheses. That's just the editor's choice. Some critical scholars have suggested, in fact, that maybe verse 15 wasn't even originally in the text of Revelation, that some well-meaning scribe just wanted to add something extra, and so he added this later on to the book of Revelation. The problem with that is that we have no existing manuscript we've ever seen that doesn't have verse 15 in it. So what we have here is an unusual, sudden interjection into an otherwise well-flowing narrative. And what is more, if you have a Bible where the words of Jesus are in red, you've already noticed this. These words are from Jesus Christ himself. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. You see, Jesus himself breaks into the narrative to say something to us, his people, his church. John is faithfully carrying out what the Lord told him to do all the way back in chapter one. Write down what you see and what you hear. And he's been doing that ever since. And he's encouraging the church because they will go through periods of suffering and they will wonder, when is the end going to happen? When is the Lord going to return as he's promised? And right in the middle of John's description of these judgments, Jesus interrupts at the most unlikely part of the story to say something to us, to warn us, to remind us how we ought to be living because he indeed is coming with power. In judgment, he says he's coming like a thief. Everyone knows that a thief can come to your house. We hope he won't, but he can't. But because a thief by nature does not announce his coming, you know, he doesn't leave a note on your door saying, I'm going to try to rob you tomorrow night, okay? That would be a, 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 a pretty arrogant thief. We never know when he will strike. The Lord isn't trying to liken himself to a bad criminal here. He's trying to say by nature of the fact that we don't know the thief is coming. And if you're not prepared, it's like a thief breaking in. It's like something that you don't want to happen happens. And you never know when. When we lived in Minneapolis, we were robbed three times. Uh, we weren't even living like in a bad part of Minneapolis. Uh, but it just happened. And we even had it happen anywhere else except in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The first time we had just come back from being away for a week at camp. We had our own campground for the church. And my wife and I uh, were with the teens all week. And we, we came back and my, my wife uh, got there uh, earlier than I did. And we, we, she walked up to the door and it had been kicked in. That's what the thieves do. The Minneapolis police told us. They ring the doorbell. If, if they, they determine nobody's home, they will kick the door one time really hard. And if it breaks open, they'll go in and take what they want. But if it doesn't break open, they run. They get out of there and they go to another house. That's what they do. They took Rena's jewelry, grabbed some of our CDs, which were all classical and conservative Christian music. So they're probably really bummed out, actually. <laughs> they were like, we got the wrong house. And they took my computer. I had a 500 megabyte hard drive on that computer and an a eight megabytes of RAM and a, and a colored monitor so uh, some of you are like, so what? But some of you are like, yeah, that was, that was the days, right? Uh, nobody even, that's like ancient tech now, but they got that. The other times 
thieves came. They broke into our car. And this was in broad daylight. We locked our doors one time in the parking lot. We took the kids down to the playground. There was a grove of trees there, so you couldn't really see the parking lot very well. When we returned, our window was smashed and our stuff had been taken out of the car. We knew this could happen. But every time we were taken by surprise. You know why? Because we were not actively guarding against it. I mean, theoretically, if someone had been house-sitting for us, chances are we never would have been robbed. And if one of us had stayed with the car where the other one went to play with the kids, no one would have smashed our window and taken our stuff. That's the idea here in Revelation 16. Jesus is going to come. You can expect it. In fact, here in Revelation 16, there are those who are looking for his coming, who are aware that it can't be much longer before he comes. But the warning that Jesus is giving here is for those who are not paying attention, who are not looking for him. Because they are not looking for him, they are behaving like someone who is not expecting him. And they're going to be taken by surprise because they are not living the way he wants them to live. You see, it's one thing to watch what is happening in the world and process it. But it's another thing to know what's going on and what to do about it and how to behave. Every time big world events start happening, we start watching our world a lot carefully, a lot more carefully, don't we? In fact, we could be not even paying one bit of attention and it can take just a day of activity and now we're really riveted on what's happening. I, I'm guessing most of you are watching the situation between Russia and Ukraine and the impact this is having globally, the apparent cooperation between Russia and China, which is the scary thing, and the continued attack upon the Ukrainian people, and Russia fast turning back into a police state, the, the kind of Russia that I grew up with until perestroika, you know, when, under Ronald Reagan, and it's been a lot better, well, I mean, a lot better than it was ever since. It's, it's sort of like the clock is being turned back now. Has anyone besides me Google information about which areas would be most impacted in the U.S. if a nuclear war broke out? Have you, have you looked for maps like that? Which cities were the most likely to be hit? You know, just out of curiosity, I found myself kind of you know, Googling stuff like that recently. Ever since COVID-19 became a thing, and now with this last uh, international threat, uh, this is the time that doomsday preppers have dreamed about. You know who preppers are, right? These are the people who go all out preparing for nuclear attack and the otherwise collapse of society. Less than two years ago, in fact, sales for those emergency kits, you know, with the food that's supposed to last like 50 years, uh, those, those sales, once COVID hit, soared upwards about 200 to some say 1,700% in sales. I can only imagine that that trend is continuing today. People are scared. They're scared. And when people get scared, some of them panic. They don't know what to do. And others go into survival mode. They plan the escape route. They stockpile. They think of worst case scenarios. They arm themselves for defense. In fact, speaking of preppers who dig bunkers and make hideouts in preparation for the apocalypse, it used to be that these 
were sort of a, a fringe on, uh, on society, digging themselves in, arming themselves in case society collapses. But this is no longer the case that they're a fringe. Many more people in Western culture now are taking their cues from the preppers. They're, they're starting to think about what could happen and starting to arm themselves. Gun sales going up and, so, and, and things like that. And there's no shortage today of documentaries and reality shows about prepping and how to survive when society is destroyed with, with titles like Survivor, Alone, Life Below Zero, Man versus the Wild. I've never seen any of those shows, by the way. I'm just curious about the titles. So I'm not recommending any of them necessarily. But can you imagine how people are going to be thinking about survival when the earth begins to come apart in the tribulation period, when there is war and famine and pandemic throughout the world? What's been happening in our culture lately is like a walk on the beach compared to what is coming. And think through every aspect about how to survive, how to prolong your life and the lives of your family members. This is about the best the world can do without Christ. Think about how to survive. But how does the Lord Jesus Christ tell his people to respond? How should we live? What are we supposed to be concerned with as the end approaches? As we see events unfold in the world, even now that tempt us to fear for our safety and the safety of our families, wars and rumors of wars that make us wonder if the world state is finally being set for the events described in Revelation. The Lord breaks into this narrative at this moment. Well, our attention is riveted on the judgments coming to the world right before the Lord returns like a thief. He breaks in to tell us how to process all of this. And whether we are believers in the tribulation period, surrounded by armies of those who hate the Lord in a world shaken by relentless plagues of judgment, or whether we are the church and the world today waiting for the Lord to come and catch us away, as Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. What are we supposed to be doing? Jesus' admonition to us is not survival prepping, but spiritual prepping. What is spiritual prepping look like? Well, according to what Jesus himself says, it looks like two actions, and you can see these for yourself right in the text. Jesus said, blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on. You see, there are very clearly two spiritual activities here, staying awake and staying dressed, keeping your clothes on. The Greek text literally reads, blessed the one watching and the one keeping on his clothes. That's what it says in the Greek language. These are spiritual metaphors admonishing us to live in a particular way as we see the day of the Lord coming nearer and nearer. As the Lord prepares to return in power and judgment for the final vindication of his people, he admonishes us to be spiritually prepared in two ways. One, stay fully awake. And two, stay fully dressed. Now, what do these metaphors actually mean? Because word pictures can be interpreted in a number of different ways. And we can all maybe kind of get close to the meaning here. But we want to know, are we really getting what Jesus is telling us? In this case, 
it's a good thing. We have more of the word of God to help us than just this text. Because there are other passages of scripture where we see the same word pictures being used. And we can get, I think, a clearer understanding of these ideas in those other contexts. What I want to do is I want to go to some other scriptures and look at what they say about the same idea and then bring that back as we finish up and look at what this particular verse says. So we're going to turn first to the gospel of Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, where Jesus is speaking to his disciples. In fact, the subject of discussion In Luke chapter 12, it's the same in Mark chapter 13 and Matthew 24. It's uh, one of these accounts in the Gospels where you have three different versions of it uh, told by three different authors, their perspectives on it. It's the same conversation Jesus is having. He is talking to them about this period of judgment that we're reading about in Revelation. He's not going into as much detail as we find in Revelation, but this is what he's talking about. So Jesus has already said the kind of thing he says in Revelation chapter 16 to his disciples. And when I put these texts on the screen, I'm going to underline certain ideas here. It's because I'm highlighting some of the same verbiage that you see here that we see back in Revelation chapter 16. Again, this is Jesus speaking specifically to his disciples. And it's important for you to note that in the larger context, what has Jesus been talking about? Well, he's been talking about how to have the right perspective on life. In Luke 12, he's teaching them the right way to look at their world and find their place in it. Prior to these verses, Jesus tells them the parable of the man who invested in the wealth of this world by pulling down his smaller barns and building bigger. Remember that parable? That's in Luke chapter 12. He has a lot of crops and he's like, you know what? I'll I'll pull down these smaller barns and I'll make bigger ones. And he's sleeping at night and the Lord comes to him in a vision and says, you fool, all you're doing is preparing for earthly things. And tonight your life is required of you. The Lord uh, took him home that night. And all these plans were never realized. And Jesus says, this is what happens to people who do not store up wealth in heaven. And then he warns the disciples not to lay up treasure upon earth and worry about earthly things, but to lay up treasure in heaven by following God and doing his will. And in this context, where Jesus is adjusting their view of how they should live their lives on this earth, he begins to speak to them about the end times. He says in verse 35, stay dressed for action. Literally, let your waist be girded about, which, which, which is a way of dressing where you are ready to go and keep your lamps burning and be like men, literally the word is people here, who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. That's our, our, our word, by the way, in Revelation sixteen fifteen. It's the same word, to be awake, to be watching. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third watch and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. 
Then he says, you also must be ready. Here's the application. You also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not respect. Now notice we have the metaphor of being dressed, the metaphor of being awake, and the illustration of the thief who comes unexpectedly in this same passage. And I'll tell you, the only time Jesus talks about being awake in the gospels, except for one thing, when he's telling his disciples to be awake while he prays in the garden. Remember that passage? Besides that, the only time Jesus talks about being awake is in the context of his coming in the Gospels. And he also likes to use this illustration about the thief. This is the way Jesus liked to talk about his coming. He liked that illustration. He uses it several times. So notice that here, being dressed and watching has to do with being prepared to welcome the Lord when he comes. It, it's like you do when you have guests arriving, right? If you, you had this happen before, especially like you, your kids are there and you're getting all ready for maybe grandma and grandpa or maybe some special guests that have come from out of town and you're doing everything you can. Everybody's helping to clean the house and make the meal and set the table and you're thinking about what you're going to wear and, and, and someone always keeps an eye on the driveway, and then one of the kids is like, they're here, and everybody scrambles, and then, then they're not here. You know, they're just, they're just uh, maybe your kids didn't do that, but ours kid did. It was very irritating. I don't know where they get that kind of personality from. Um, but uh, they, they, it's so tempting to say they're here when they're not. It's like low-hanging fruit if you want to tease somebody because everybody's eager about it. Everybody can't wait, and they're prepping and anticipating, and they're active. And that's the idea here in Luke 12. The servants are delighted at the idea of the master coming back. But no one is taken by surprise because they've been getting ready for this day ever since he went away. They've been putting things in order, managing the resources in a way that would be pleasing to him. And they're excited to welcome him. And they want to see the gladness on his face when they find that he's, they've been doing things that have been good and faithful for him. Now, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's this section where Jesus is talking about his return using this similar language. In Matthew, Jesus also tells the parable of the wise and foolish virgins waiting for the bridegroom to come. A lot of you are familiar with that parable. And in Mark's account, Jesus is very urgent about staying awake for his coming. And this is similar to what we saw in Luke, but I want you to see just the urgency here in Mark's gospel, the way he, he frames this. Jesus is talking about the very hour of his coming, and he says, be on guard, keep awake. That's our word in Revelation 16. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midday or midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. That's what Jesus says. Stay awake. But there's another place beside the Gospels where Jesus himself challenges his people about getting ready for his coming. You know where it is? It's back in the book of Revelation. And I'm going to ask you to turn back there then. It's, it's in his message to one of the seven churches, the church of Sardis. This is one of those churches Jesus wasn't very happy with when he writes to these seven churches. 
Sardis looked like they were a vibrant, active church. Maybe they had been thriving at once. They had a good reputation, at least among the churches, of being a great church. But Jesus says, I can see right through you. At this point in your journey, there is little spiritual life left in you. So Jesus tells them in verse 2, and of course we're not looking at the full context here, but I want you to see what Jesus says to this church that, that is waning spiritually. He says, wake up, there's our word again, and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. Why why does he come like a thief? Because he's going to come one way or the other. If they're not awake, it's going to be like a thief when he comes because they're not going to expect it. We could say here, if you don't wake up, my coming to you will be like a thief coming. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet, he says, you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. There's the, the mention of the garments again. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So again, Jesus tells them in light of his sudden coming that they need to be awake. And their slumber is a sign of their spiritual apathy, their spiritual deadness. Of course, they're not thinking about the Lord's return, living in a way that would please him. Because they're not ready to meet him when he comes like a thief. They're in a comatose state spiritually. And this goes hand in hand with the state of their clothing. Just as in Revelation 16, 15, we, we notice for just a second there that they have compromised their garments. Not, uh, they've, they've removed their garments in, in Revelation 16, 15. Here they're compromising them, not because they removed them, but because they've soiled them, they've dirtied them. In this context, the soiled garments are worn by those who have caved into the culture. If we look at the larger context of his message to Sardis, they've adopted a lifestyle and values that resemble in some way the behaviors and values of the culture around them. But the white garments that Jesus promises here are representative of his purity and his holiness. Jesus is exhorting the church to wear the kinds of clothing that he is going to give them at his coming. In other words, to live and act and love and think in a way that they will one day when he clothes them with stainless garments in glory, because those whose hope is realizing righteousness in Christ then have a yearning desire to live like that now by God's grace. You always see that with believers in the scripture. What they're going to be, they want to be now, and they live out that holiness that they will Realize. So the clothing metaphor has to do with faithful obedience and separation from a sinful culture, separation from sin and unto God. And immersion into the culture produces spiritual slumber. If you are caught up in the things of the world, you can't stay awake and alive to God and alive to the world at the same time because you cannot be awake and alive to the Lord on one hand when you're consumed with the things of the world on the other. But there's one more text I'd like you to look at before we circle back to Revelation 16, and it's not something Jesus said, but it's something his apostle wrote. 
the fact that he wrote it shows that he was familiar with Jesus's teaching, which was no doubt passed on to him. And I'm talking about 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we're going to look only really because of time's sake at verses 1 through 8. This is an important text to consider because Paul has just been talking about the rapture of the church. That is the Lord's return to catch away his church that could happen at any moment. It could happen today. After which the seven years of tribulation that we've been studying in the book of Revelation begins to unfold. And Paul says in this context, now concerning the times and the season, brothers, that is, that is when, when Christ is going to return, you have no need to have anything written to you for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like what? Like a thief in the night. Well, people are saying there is peace and security. In other words, everything's okay. We don't have to be thinking about it. They're slumbering. Nothing's going on here. Everything will be okay. It's in that kind of mindset that suddenly, suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. I I often notice that the scripture likens the judgment of God or the soon coming of Christ to a woman who is expecting, who is about to give birth, okay? And and again, you you think of the suddenness of it. Uh, that lady has known for quite a while that she's going to have a baby, okay? We all know there's a nine-month process there, right? And, And we even have a due date, right? Jesus hasn't given us a due date for his coming, right? We can even know the season, the time. We can see events shaping up the world and wonder, okay, it's got to be soon. He's got to be coming soon. We don't know for sure. The Bible doesn't tell us. But we can be thinking, okay, it's got to be any moment now. And we can still go to sleep and think everything is okay. And we're still surprised because it doesn't have to do with looking at a calendar. It has to do with how we're living our lives. Are we living them for the Lord? He says, they will not escape. But you, he says, he's talking to believers in the church now. You are not in darkness, brothers. That's not how you're living. For that day to surprise you like a thief. If we're not walking in darkness, we will not be surprised. So he says, for you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. And notice Paul pairs this idea of being awake and being sober together. That's that's something to focus on for a second. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So Paul grounds, or he he groups spiritual sleepiness with two other ideas in particular, darkness and drunkenness. To be spiritually asleep is to be living in darkness and to be among those who are drunk. In other words, they are not in a right state of mind. They are living in a different reality. They're not awake to what is really taking place around them. They may live their lives consumed with the affairs of those who ignore the fact that everything they see and everything they have was created by a God 
who gave breath and life to humankind that they might worship him and know his blessing. And that this same God loves them and sent his son to save them before he returns to judge the world in righteousness. They may live their lives in a different reality than that. A reality where what really matters is your quality of life on earth and how comfortable you can be and how much you can achieve and how much you can have and how fulfilled you can be. Because after all, life is short, right? And so we got to do what we can. We got to live our dream. Isn't that the world's philosophy? We're only here for a little bit of time. People get very philosophical and very moral about that sometimes. We're only here for a short time. We just got to get everything in that we can and do, you know, they even say, you know, do family and, and uh, or, or make, you know, make your mark on the world. But that is it. They are thinking only of this life. Well, if this is your dream, it means you're spiritually asleep. You don't know what's real. You are dreaming and you may like your dream. I mean, have you ever woken up from a very wonderful dream and been disappointed, <laughs> you know? Like, oh, I'm still in Greenville. <laughs> I'm not sitting on the beach in the Bahamas without a care in the world. Uh, I have responsibilities. But, but have you had that happen sometimes? The, the dream is so vivid. And it was so real. You could have sworn it was really happening. And have you ever been like, no. And, and you tried to go back to sleep to get back in that dream before. And, and Paul's right. Drunkenness is a really good comparison. When you are not sober, you are not processing the world in the same way. You're, not, you're making decisions according to a false reality, a reality of what you think is real but it's not. When a person consumes alcohol, it enters the bloodstream and goes right to the brain where it immediately changes his or her perception of what is real. And the more alcohol is consumed, the more drunk one gets. The more detached from reality he or she becomes. Depending on your personality, you may suddenly feel relaxed and happy about everything. Or you may feel frustrated and angry about everything. Either way, you start acting out as if this new reality is true. And you can do and say some really stupid and funny things and think that everything is hilarious, or you can do some very sad and violent and hurtful things to people around you. Either way, you think you're responding to what is real, but you're not. In fact, the real challenge in trying to help an alcoholic is shaking that person from this false reality they are constantly living in. They do not know what is real anymore and they will blame other people and other circumstances for their problems. They don't want to stop drinking either because then they have to face up to the fact of what is really going on in their lives. So what is Paul saying? He's saying that believers in Christ need to live in the real world. And the real world is not the political talking points in the news media or the way that the stories of the war and international threats are relayed to us or what is going on in the world of entertainment or sports or commerce. That's not really what's going on. That may be things that are happening in the world, but they are not what is going on in the world. Do you realize there's a big difference between what is happening in the world and what is going on? The news can give us a vision of what is happening and we can look around us and see what is happening. But the Bible is the only source of reality that can tell us what is going on. In other words, what it all means. And in the real world, the Lord is always about to return like a thief. 
The thief does not come, and he does not come, and he does not come night after night, but one night he does come. And for millions of people, that will be a rude awakening. That will be like coming out of a drunken state to be slapped back into reality, and there will be no escape. So with these things in mind, coming back to Revelation 16, 15, when we read these words of the Lord who loves us, who is concerned for us, who wants us to know what is real, Jesus is not saying something new here. Jesus is reminding us what he taught in the gospels to his disciples when he was talking about the same event, what he says to the church in the earlier part of Revelation about how they're to think about living for him right now and what his own apostle Paul says in his letter to one of the earliest churches who were also waiting for the Lord to return. So let's bring all of this to bear on the meaning of Revelation 16, 15, where the Lord Jesus breaks in suddenly, unexpectedly, just like his coming, and says, behold, I am coming. Don't doubt it. It's going to happen. And it's going to be like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Here is what Jesus tells you and me that we need to be prepared for. He says we need to be prepared in two ways. First of all, we need to stay fully awake because he says, blessed is the one who stays awake. That means, as we've seen, at least two things. First, it means that we are eager for the Lord's return. We're waiting for him. We realize it could happen any time and we behave accordingly. There, there are uh, times in uh, church teaching history where you look in recent decades where there are some decades, it seems, at least in my experience, where everybody's talking about the return of the Lord. And this is a time period I'm thinking about where a lot of pastors and churches would have these big charts up in front of their church and they'd be teaching through Revelation, showing everybody when it's going to happen. Everybody's thinking about uh, the Lord's coming. But when we relax, when we stop looking at Scripture, we stop thinking about the fact that Jesus' coming is imminent. In other words, we don't know when it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. Sometimes Christians ask, what should we be doing when the Lord's return, when the Lord returns? What do you want to be doing when Jesus Christ comes back? You know what? This is a spiritually insightful question. It's a biblical question. You know what? I think it's the kind of question Jesus wants us to act, uh, wants us to ask. And the answer is we should be doing his will ordering our lives in a way that we know would please him so that we would be like, he's here. And and we have no qualms about running out and meeting him and welcoming him because we want him to be pleased with what's going on in our lives. In fact, the apostle John himself, uh, who, who wrote the book of Revelation, tells us in his first letter, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence, going out confidently to meet him and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. He says this in the same chapter where he tells us, don't love the world, nor the things that are in the world. And in the same chapter where he warns us of those who will try to deceive us to make us believe a different reality. This is the same chapter where he says those two things. And he says that there is a way to live so that we are ashamed 
when the Lord appears suddenly and unexpectedly. And there's a way to live where we have confidence and we desire eagerly for him to return. But not only does staying fully awake mean that we're eager for the Lord's return, it also means we have to be living in the right reality. What really matters is not being a person who is always following the fashions of the fallen world. It's not about being in style and having the latest tech. What really matters is not climbing the corporate ladder or merely being successful in your business or line of work. What really matters at the end of the day is not riches or fame or position, and neither is it the simpler things, a home, a family, a trouble-free life. Even though so many of these things could be seen as evidence of God's goodness or blessing, to think that any of these things are the main show in this fallen world is a false reality. What is really going on is that we are living in a world created to glorify God, yet the world has rejected God. So it is now going to judgment. And the people of this world are either trusting the Lord for salvation unto eternal life or they are following the path of the devil and his world on their way to destruction. They are, as Jesus describes them in Ephesians chapter 2, children of wrath, waiting for God's wrath. Those are the only real two kinds of people in the world. And it does not matter what social status or income level or position of authority anyone has. That is all an illusion That's not reality. That's not how the world runs. The richest, most influential ruler can go to destruction while the humblest member of society no one has ever heard about can be ushered into eternal life or vice versa. Reality is whether you truly know the Lord as your Savior. In fact, John describes back in Revelation chapter 6 how it will be on that day. He says, then the kings of the earth Uh, and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free. So not just the celebrated in the world, but also the nobodies of the world, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Nobody who does not know the Lord. When reality comes suddenly to bear upon the world, none of these class distinctions and other realities we construct for ourselves based on social status will matter. Because even though that may be happening in the world, that's not really what's going on in the world. What we are doing here, in fact, and I've mentioned this from time to time, what we are doing here this morning at Little Gateway Baptist Church that nobody's hardly ever heard about in the one little corner of Traveler's Rest. And what we're focusing on and what we're celebrating is more at the center of what really matters than any other big news story going on in the world. And they'll probably never come and do a news story on Gateway Baptist Church. And yet we are at the center of what God is really doing in the world. This is what is going on. Because we are worshiping the Lord who is about to return for us. And one day that reality will come suddenly and unmistakably to bear upon the whole world. So Jesus says, stay fully awake. Be eager for his coming and and be aware of what's really going on in the world. Based on what the scripture says, he gives us one other warning. He says, stay fully dressed. 
because he says, blessed are the one who stays awake and literally the one keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And the idea here goes along with being prepared for the Lord's coming. When we go to bed, we normally remove clothing rather than put more on. So if we're in bed and somebody comes to the front door, what do we do? We jump up, we put on a robe or some other clothing, and then we go to the door and answer it. So being asleep and wearing fewer clothes really go hand in hand. Some of us perhaps have had the unfortunate experience of coming out of our bedroom and nobody has announced to us that there is actually another guest in the house. And we quickly turn around when we hear them or, or see them and we run back into our room surprised and embarrassed and ashamed. But clothing in Revelation, as we've seen, and also in the New Testament in general, is a metaphor for how we are behaving, how we are living. For example, Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, Put on then, and that's the verb for putting on clothing. It's a verb that in Greek that means to get dressed. Put on, get dressed in, as God's holy ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Put on kindness, put on humility, put on meekness, put on patience. And then he says in verse 14, above all these things, put on love, which binds all the other, clothings together, all the other clothing together in perfect harmony. So, the question we need to ask ourselves is, are we going to be dressed the right way when the Lord returns? Wearing the kind of clothing that you would want to have on to receive an honored guest. Are you dressed in obedience to God's will? Are you dressed in these Christ-like virtues of kindness and compassion, humility and patience and love? Are you dressed morally? Are you dressed in faithfulness? And keep in mind, your clothing is not what people think you are. Your clothing is what the Lord knows you to be. What people think you are, that could be nothing more than a constructed false reality. What the Lord knows you to be, that's what's real. And that's what the Lord is urging us to deal with in our lives. So the Lord warns us, stay fully awake. Are you awake? Are you living as if the Lord may show up at any time? Do you have the right sense of what is real and are you living in that reality? Are are your hopes and dreams and plans anchored to what Scripture says is really going on in the world? And he warns us, stay fully dressed. Are you living in the way the Lord would want you to live in a way where you would not be ashamed of His appearing? You know, the Lord doesn't break in with this dramatic warning because he's angry with us or because he delights in trying to scare us. He's not, he's not giving pastors something to ratchet down the pressure with or, or evangelists somewhere to try to get more people down the aisle because, because he says this. No, he's warning us because he loves us and he knows what is real and what is really going to happen. So I don't know what this means for you personally today, but in light of what is going on in the world, not merely what is happening, but in light of what is going on in the world, both today and for eternity, we should carefully consider how awake we are and how sober we are, how dressed we are to meet the Lord. And that's something the Lord can do through His grace to build within us these spiritual qualities that would make us eager for His return. Father, thank you.